you have your Bible with you, hopefully you do, you can go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, our focus will be verses 5 through 9 this morning. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, we continue our series of Ephesians. We're getting through it, almost, almost done, almost to the end of the book. Uh, but Paul has been spending some time now talking about relationships, uh, specifically even within the household. And that continues today in our section here. Again, remember, we're talking about spirit-filled believers. These are relationships between brothers and sisters in the Lord. And today we get to a very interesting section. Today we will be talking about slaves and masters. Now, as I say that, no doubt in your heart maybe skips a beat. You think, man, this is pretty uncomfortable, especially with our history and our country, or even what we see today with racism and the talk of racism and all these things. But we're actually going to be discussing this this morning and also tonight in the service tonight. It's really going to be a two-parter uh, on this section. And so I would encourage you to come back tonight if you want to hear the finishing of, of the sermon, really. Uh, but tonight, our focus is going to be on how this passage relates maybe today to us and our work relationships. Because I do think you can pull that from this section for sure. I think some pastors jump there a little too quick, but we can take some truths from this section to see how we should be engaged at work and the relationships that we have there. But then also tonight, uh, talking about the role of the church versus the role of the individual Christian. And I do want you to know there's a difference there. I debated really hard over the past couple days in my own head that this, this should be a two-parter in the morning. And we'd focus on that next Sunday, but I think what would be best is to uh, preach that tonight. And so like I said, I hope you'll come back uh, to look at that with us. Again, the role of the church versus the role of the individual Christian and see the difference there. This morning, I think what Paul is really pointing us to and what I really want our focus to be in the morning for us to see is how the gospel is effective in all relationships. Good ones, bad ones, horrible ones. The gospel still Works, And I really think this is the big point of what Paul wants us to see is that the gospel can even change those relationships. When we are filled with the spirit, it, it of course then causes us to live a certain way. We've been looking at that for a while now. And not just to live a certain way when we walk into this building and gather here on Sunday morning to worship together, which the spirit will have an impact on that. But if you're really a Christian, if you've really been saved by God's grace, it's going to have an impact on how you live outside of these walls and all of your relationships, of all of your dealings and everything that you do. And we see Paul even address a relationship, like I said, that makes us maybe extremely uncomfortable, slaves and masters. And so look, beginning in verse 5 through verse 9 of chapter 6. Uh, the ESV says, bondservants were their slave. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or is free, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, 
knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with them. Now, one of the things that you will see sometimes uh, pastors do, those who write commentaries, is they will jump very quickly to our relationship now with bosses, employers, employees, stuff like that. And again, I'll talk about that some tonight because I do think that is relevant. But what I'm afraid that they do is they water down the very first word that we have there in verse 5. Uh, ESV says bondservant, but your, your, yours there might say slave. And that's the word. The word there in the Greek is, is slave. There's, there's no way around it. And so what I've seen some people try to do is try to minimize that word to say that it means something different today. And I want to tell you that's not true. It's not true at all. Paul is a Roman citizen, as we know, and there was an immense amount of slavery in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire. It was a very common thing in the day of Paul to be around slaves and to see slaves. Some estimate that the population of Rome was five to up to 30% slaves, which you're talking in the millions. Five to maybe, some estimate, 30 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of slaves. And sl slaves came to the Roman Empire in all different ways. Some were just simply prisoners of war. As Rome would conquer land, they would take those as prisoners and turn them into slaves. Some were sold as children. Parents for whatever reason or kids who were kidnapped, whatever it might be. And they were then sold into slavery. Some people put themselves into slavery because of debts that were unpaid. At times, yes, with slavery in the Roman Empire, race was involved. But race was involved, it seems, as in a way like we just went to this new land, we conquered this land. Now all of them are slaves. It wasn't necessarily picking a certain race and saying they are going to be our slaves. For the Roman Empire, it was everybody should be our slaves. Whoever we conquer, they are going to be our slaves. So this, there is a difference there as with the slavery we might think about in our country with the transatlantic slave trade where it was definitely more about race. But make no wrong assumption here. And again, this is what I've seen some commentators do. They say, but the slave, slavery was just different. No, it was not. There's plenty of records throughout history where people who were, who were wealthy would, would talk about their household and the people within their household. You'd see their sons and you'd see their daughters and you'd see whatever it might be in that household. But then you would also see a list of possessions, tools, hammers, whatever it might be. Along with the possessions were slaves. They were not seen as people. They were, they were not seen as somebody to even really care for. They were a tool. A slave was seen as a tool. Now, yes, sometimes a slave could become free, and there was different ways that this would happen within the Roman Empire. They could work a certain set of years to gain their freedom. They could maybe pay for their freedom even, or sometimes masters would just simply give freedom uh, to the slave. Uh, but I don't think this was the common thing that would happen. Slavery was harsh. It was a horrible thing even during Paul's time. You would even see some non-Christian writers, I think it was Seneca, the philosopher, would write to slave masters that they should treat their slaves better. So you did see that some. And so it permeated the whole culture. But slavery in Rome was brutal. And it was often very, very heartless. 
And I say that because this is the relationship that Paul is talking about now here in verses five through nine of chapter six. This is the relationship that Paul is speaking into. And so I want you to imagine with me, if you can, being the church that Paul is writing this letter to. And Paul would not say this unless without a doubt within that church was sitting as this letter was being read, slaves and masters, both sitting in the same section, pews in our days, we would say, but listening to the letter together. Paul is addressing both of them. Slaves, dot, dot, dot. Masters, dot, dot, dot. A part of the same body of Christ, saved by the same Savior, loved by the same God. And Paul wants them to know as they sit there and listen to this letter that the gospel now changes their relationship. That the gospel, as a spirit-filled believer, it now is going to have an impact on your relationship as slave and master. So I don't, again, I don't want to just push this aside to say, no, it was something much softer back then. No, it wasn't. Because when we do that, I think we minimize the point that Paul is talking about. So as we start to break down verses 5 through 9, I'm going to do it the same way that we have with husbands and wives and Pastor Scott did with parents and children. It first talks to slaves, and it says, tells the slaves to obey your masters as you would Christ. We see this in verses 5 through 8, and it breaks it down in some different ways. First, he says, with fear and trembling. He tells the slave to obey your master with fear and trembling. Now, for us, it might seem, well, that would be obvious because he's probably going to get beaten if he doesn't. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about, though, here. I want to go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Hopefully, it's up on the on the screen there for you to follow along. But it harkens back to this. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The question then comes, what does Paul mean in both of these cases, the fear and trembling? So we see working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which we've been talking extensively from the pulpit, that it's God who saves. You don't save yourself. God saves you, right? By his grace, through faith in his son. So what can this mean? Well, it's important for us as we come across something like that to let scripture interpret scripture. Not to let you or I try to think of what it might mean and come up with something on our own, but no, let let God's word interpret God's word because we see this in other areas of the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 14 to 15, it says, For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Paul talking about Titus coming to this church and going to help lead them as a a pastor, elder, and how they received Titus with fear and trembling. Does this mean that Titus was just a dominant figure and they were scared of him? No, I, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's the picture that we have here or that we are given here. It, it must mean something else, right? There, there must be something else that Paul is talking about there. Or if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which I got to turn there because I didn't copy it down there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5 we see this used again. 
He says, and when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the, of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, we can't look at that passage and say, well, Paul was just scared to death to talk to these people. Does that sound like Paul's character at all? He was always very bold to go and to speak. And so fear and trembling can't just mean I'm scared to death. I'm scared out of my mind of, of what might happen here. It's got to mean something else. And it seems what Scripture is talking about is this fear and trembling here seems to be talking more about humility. Having an understanding of the importance of what is happening. So as the church would accept Titus as a pastor respecting him and the authority that had been given to him and the job that he was about to do. Or Paul going with fear and trembling, knowing what God had called him to do, to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel and to preach Jesus to them. And he would do it with, with fear and trembling out of respect of the work that was going to be done. See, Paul saw the importance of the work at hand. The church received Titus out of respect for him. And so I think Paul is doing the same here as he is encouraging the slaves to respect their masters even when they do not deserve it. Even when their, their master is mean or is harsh, is not kind at all, he still is encouraging them to respect them. But he goes on, not just with fear and trembling, he says with a sincere heart in the second part of verse five all the way to verse six. Now this is where it gets pretty dicey for me because I cannot imagine to begin to understand the difficulty of this command to a slave. Now, I could understand if Paul said, grit your teeth and bear it and keep working. But he doesn't. He says, work for your master with a sincere heart. And he gives them this command and we cannot dodge it. What Paul's pointing out here to us and to these people is how much of an impact the gospel has on our life, how it completely changes our whole focus to serving Jesus above all else in all things, even in the worst conditions imaginable. I told you, I didn't want to water down what a slave was in Rome, and I think this is why some pastors do it, but you cannot do that. It was horrible. It was very bad conditions, as bad as you can Think. I mean, I saw instances where they would, what they used slaves for was mining. They didn't care about how they breathed. They didn't care about what was going on in the mine. The slave died, push them out of the way, put the next one in. We need this to build this. That's how they were treated. It was a horrible situation. But Paul is pointing out that the gospel changes even the slave's focus in life. It's not about serving that man. It's about serving your savior in all things at all times. And this is why he says in verse seven through eight, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will see, receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or if he is free. Working as to the Lord, all of this done with an understanding that they do not work for some earthly master. Now think about this. Some of these people, some of these slaves were ripped from their home. Rome came in and decided we are going to conquer this land. This is now our land. And they did that. And then they take everybody from that land 
and they turned them into forced labor. Now, you, you imagine being in that situation. You must think that your life is absolutely worthless. Anything that you had been living for before, over. You now live for Rome. You now serve Rome. And you see this man who owns you and he treats you like garbage all the time. And you just have to think every day, what is the point? What is the point of my life? This all just seems so worthless. But yet Paul would write a letter to this church and speak directly to the slaves and say, know this, your life is not worthless. You are serving the Lord every single day. Every single day. As a born-again believer, as somebody who's been filled with the Spirit, you do not serve some earthly master, but you serve God Almighty. And while it all seems worthless to you, you are not worthless to God. He's given you worth. And he's given everything you do worth. And so work in that way. Work for the Lord and work in a way that honors and glorifies him in everything you do. What a task. What a request. It really makes our task as husbands and wives, parents and kids seem kind of smaller. You know, the whole sermon that was nervous, you're talking about submission? I gotta love her even to death despite all of whatever. Yeah, oh, poor you. I gotta raise my kids and teach them kids. I gotta, I gotta obey my parents. Oh, no. Slaves, you gotta obey your masters and do it as to the Lord. Do it faithfully. This is how big the gospel is, this is the impact. As we get to verse 9, we see a big difference, a big change from what society would say. Masters, do the same. He says, masters, do the same. Now, what does Paul mean by this? How can the master do the same thing? He's not in the same situation as the slave. No. Paul tells them that they now need to treat that slave how Jesus would treat them. If the slaves are to treat their masters how they would treat Christ, He's saying, you masters, treat your slave how Jesus would treat them. And we know what that means. Jesus would die for their slave. Jesus would give his life and would shed his blood. Why? So that slave could be set free spiritually forever. And now this is what's being put on that master. Treat your slave in the same way, in a way that would honor the Lord in everything. He says, do not threaten them. Do not cause them harm. And why does he say this? Well, on what basis does all of this come from? He says, look at, look at nine. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. That had to be quite the word for masters to hear. Because all of a sudden they were told, remember, you have a master. You have a master in heaven who you serve, and that's their master. <laughs> when you look on the pay scale of heaven, you're not up above them. <laughs> there's our master, and there's all of us. And as Romans chapter 12 tells us, we are all bondservants to him, slaves to him. We all serve Christ because of what he has done for us. And Paul is telling these masters, God shows absolutely no partiality between you and them. Galatians chapter 3, verse 25 to 29. 
It says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and no female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What's Paul talking about there in Galatians? Well, now some would use this passage, and you need to hear this, to tell us that you see, God doesn't care about gender. There's no longer male or female. So that's what Paul's saying here. And so we don't have to worry about gender anymore. That is an old thing that you guys are worried about, and you're actually missing out on a lot of people who might love Christ if you would just say that this is true. Stop worrying about gender. That's not what Paul's doing here. That's not what he's doing at all. He's setting up the truth that we're talking about in our passage with relationships. He's saying God changes our relationships through the gospel so that you Jewish man and you Gentile man, guess what? You are of the same body of Christ. You guys need to get along because you serve the same master in heaven. You slave, you master, you guys are the same. You serve the same master. You male, you female, you serve the same master. Paul is not abolishing these things. He's not abolishing them at all. In fact, he's letting us know that it's there. And he, Paul, which we're going to talk about tonight, I'd encourage you to come back tonight, his job isn't to abolish these things. It's quite interesting. Paul doesn't tell the masters to free the slave. He doesn't. He doesn't tell the slave to get up and revolt. He doesn't tell women, take a stand for yourself and become independent. He doesn't do any of that. That's not his task. That's not the job that God had given him. The job that Paul had been given was to preach the gospel and to tell the church, this is what's going to happen because of the gospel and it's going to have an impact on your relationships. And so what he's telling to these masters, he's saying, listen, God sees no difference between you and the slave. So how can you? How can you continue to see a difference? If Jesus were to die for you, the master, and for your slave, then how can one be worth more than the other? This is why the masters must stop their threatening. This is your brother. This is your sister in the Lord. This is who Christ died for. Again, picture the scene. I try to bring it up every time we have Lord's Supper in here together. The Lord's Supper is for Christians, people who've been saved by God's grace. And you take that cup of juice and you take that bread and you hold it and you put it in your mouth and you drink of the cup and we're all saying the exact same thing. Jesus died for me. But it's something that God has ordered us to do together. Why? It puts us all on the same playing field. For the person standing on the stage preaching the word of God to the person way in the back that I can see, I can see you in the back, it's for you too. I'm no better than you. We have the same master, the same savior, who died the same death, the same agonizing death that I needed for my sins to be forgiven is the same death you needed. And the same goes for the slave and for the free. Paul's telling them, you are brothers and sisters in the Lord and Christ died for you. You need to act like it in here, but you also need to act like it out there. 
Paul wants us to see that the gospel impacts all relationships. And I think this is the big thing to take away from this section on relationships. No matter what position you find yourself in, even this morning, as I mentioned before, Paul would say the Jew, the Greek, the slave, the prisoner, the free, the mom, the dad, the uncle, the aunt, the child, people in a war-torn region, those who find themselves in a peaceful, peaceful region. What Paul wants us to see, what he wants this church to know, is that the gospel works in all of those areas. The gospel works in all of those lives, in all of those relationships. It works, and it not only works, but it then impacts our relationships and then thus society. And so if I stand before a people of great influence, the gospel is the same message. If I go to India, into the slums of India, and in preaching the gospel message to people with leprosy, who are considered nothing and worthless, guess what? Same exact message. No change. No different. No context that I have to worry about and say, I should probably should change this word. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for you. He died a gruesome death for you in your place so that your sins can be covered with his blood. He rose again on the third day to conquer death, hell, and the grave. Why? For you, because you cannot do it. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how little money you have. I don't care what color you are. I don't care how nice you are, how mean you are, how kind you are. This gospel message is the same for all. Paul is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is greater than any and all roadblocks that we may see. What we as people think is an impossible task, the gospel says, no, it is not a problem at all for God. Even in a relationship like this, that makes us all very uncomfortable, slave and master. I'm sure you wish I'd stop saying master. I want to stop saying it. But the gospel even works in that. The disciples had a question for Jesus. And Jesus answered them. This is in Matthew 19, 23 to 30. You'll probably recognize this. It says, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> it says again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Because you see, in the disciples' mind and in the culture, it only made sense that those with wealth, with money, it would be easier. They could go and give their tithes and give their offerings and really care for the temple and do all these things. They really showed their faith out. The rich would have it easier. And so they're shocked and they ask Jesus, who then can be saved? It says, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. I wonder if Jesus paused there. In our language, we have a comma, which means to pause. Because you'd be hanging there this is impossible with man. Well, we're men. That's a problem. We are man. So what are you saying? No rich people will be in heaven? You're telling me it's impossible for that to happen? Then he goes on, doesn't he? But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, 
See, look, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, the divide of the rich and poor was so immense. The disciples just struggled to see how God would work in this. Yet Jesus wasn't phased for a second. What seemed impossible for us wasn't a problem at all for God. There are areas in our world today where people seem to have no hope. We see it on the TV screen, we hear about it on the radio, we read about it on our computers, on the internet. We see the devastation that people are going through. And it really seems like there's no hope at all. We wonder what good could come out of this if any, their station in life makes it look like nothing can help them. And almost always, our first response in those situations is what can I do? What can man do? You've been seeing that play out this week with what's going on in Ukraine. What can we do? Let's throw money at it. Maybe we should throw soldiers at it. Maybe we should do this or that. There's all kinds of different talk and thoughts about what can happen. But almost always the question is, what can man do to help man in order for things to change here? And I gotta tell you, we can't do anything. Just like the disciples would ask this question to God, to Jesus, who then can enter? Jesus say, with man, this is impossible. You see, I can't solve your problem. I can't even fix your station in life. I might want to. I might like to try. But I just can't. I, I don't have that ability. I don't have that power. I don't have that control. So oftentimes what we see is man simply cannot help man with their problems. So we find ourselves in a state of panic, wondering how can things change? How can things then be different? The answer is the church and the message that the church has been given to share with the world. It's not a message on economics. It's not a message on foreign policy or anything political. It's not even a message about me giving you money or helping you out in your station in life. The task that we'll talk about tonight more extensively that the church has been given is to let the world know that Jesus died and the gospel changes things. He died for you to save you of your sin. And when that happens, when by his grace he pours that out in your life, by faith in Christ, what happens is it changes people and as a result, changed people have changed relationships, which then causes a changed society, which causes a changed life. Now, the problem is we start to mess that up. We start to forget 
that our main task is the gospel. To tell people, I know you're starving right now, but what's more important than how hungry you are is how lost you are. It's how lost you are. You need the gospel. Now, I can't promise you bread will fall from heaven and you'll eat, but I can promise you this. One day you will eat with the king in glory. If by faith, through his grace, you believe. That's the message we have. Not how can man help man, but we have the message to say God has helped man in Christ. And so we need to hold that true in our hearts as a church and as believers. The gospel does not stop because of people's station in life. The gospel works for all people in all places and at all times. We have not come to a point in time in history where the gospel is inadequate now because people are just too smart for it. No, that is not true. The gospel is just as good today as it was the day Jesus raised from the dead. It has the same power, the same impact in people's lives. And so as Christians, as we are changed by the gospel, because we've been saying this over and over again, this doesn't happen overnight. Some husband comes to know the Lord. He isn't all of a sudden this perfect husband that we see being talked about in Ephesians 5. As a wife comes to know the Lord, she isn't always perfect in her relationship then to her husband. But over time, hopefully what we see as God continues to work in your life, yes, you've been saved by his grace, but as God changes you, molds you and makes you into the image of his son, which for some of you has been going on for 50, 60, 70 years in your life. You know he's been slowly molding and making you into his image, and I key in on slowly, right? Amen? I mean, it's a slow process. But the gospel continues to change our hearts. He continues to show his love for us. Even though we're like that mule that kicks against it. I don't want to change. I don't want to. I love you. You need to change. And we see how in our relationships this has an impact. And so as Christians are changed by the gospel. And they grow in it each day. What we then will see and what we've seen throughout history is this is then how society is changed for the good. Individual Christians living out their life faithfully within the relationships that God has given them, husband and wife, parent, child, worker, co-worker, whatever it might be. It's in those relationships then where we start to see the impact on crime, poverty, orphans, or whatever it might be. But you remember Jesus would say, in the Gospels, and talking about the poor and the needy. You remember what he said? These you always will have with you. We're never going to solve that. It's never going to be eradicated. The Bible promised us there will be wars and rumors of wars. It will continue to happen till the end of time. Yet as Christians, we still can have an impact in our society, and it's done by the Gospel changing our life within the relationships around us as we live that spirit-filled life that God has given us in Christ. Think about the greatness of the gospel and what it has done. Right now, this very morning, over a span of whatever, however many time zones we have, 
our brothers and sisters in the Lord that we are connected through in Christ, I don't know their name. If they told me their name, I probably wouldn't even understand what they said. But right now, they are sitting in a pew, in a chair, on the floor, up against some tree outside, listening to a pastor preach to them the word of God. They're singing songs to God together, and we are a part of them as the body of Christ, united together. Why? Because the gospel is no respecter of person, race, creed, whatever. The gospel is what unites us. And one day the Bible promises that together we will worship him in glory, singing praises as the bride of Christ, remember? That Christ has cleansed and purified and made holy to be presented to himself. It'll be us with rich people, with poor people, people with different color skin, male and female, younger people, older people, all types of people. Why? Because the gospel works for all. I think this is a good reminder for us this morning because I see a lot of Christians down and out a lot of times, and I'm one of those. I can get like that. Where you start to wonder, you know, what is the point? As you get older, you start to say things like the world just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. When you're a teenager, you think the world is getting better and better and better and better. I don't know what that age is when it gets worse and better. But at some point in life, it happens. We struggle with that. I remind you as a Christian, the gospel still works. Don't doubt that. Don't just say it. Don't just give word of mouth. Don't come and tell me, oh yeah, the gospel and grace, I love it. Know it. Trust it. Have our full hope in it. And when you share the gospel with your grandma, with your brother, with your sister, with your coworker, Wife, as you sit here by yourself because your husband is lost, believe that when you share the gospel with him, God will use it because the gospel does work. It has for thousands of years and it will continue to work until the day Christ returns. We do not serve some lost cause. We do not stand like barricaded and when we die, it's just all gone. No, we stand below the banner of Christ, which waves forever. It waves forever. And all oh, the world might forget me. The world might forget you and who you are. Know this, we'll never forget the gospel. It can't, it can't throw it away. It has too strong of an impact in all things. And that is what Paul's pointing out in our passage today. Even for the slave and the master. The gospel works. Now you have to think it made a difference too in those households. That slave and that master sitting there in that chair, hear that letter read, and then they go home. You tell me that doesn't have an impact? You tell me that doesn't change the home? It doesn't change that relationship? I would have to think that after that message, there were some free men walking out of that building. Real quickly. Some free men. But maybe not as well. But now a respect and a mutual love for each other in Christ as they continue to serve each other. I hope you'll come back tonight as we'll talk about how this has an impact in our workplace relationship and then again on the role of the church and the individual Christian. 
But I really hope that from a passage that I think a lot of people don't want to preach on because it is uncomfortable, and I understand that. But I hope that out of this passage, you can see the great hope that Paul provides for us in the words that he penned through the Holy Spirit's power. Power of the gospel is amazing. It's far-reaching. Its impact is unstoppable. Satan can't stop it. The world cannot stop it. As long as we as the church and as individual Christians remain faithful to being the church, of being Christians, of being the people that God has called us to be, even in our little mediocre relationships that we think don't mean anything. I'm telling you, according to God's word, they mean everything. Keep being a faithful Christian in those relationships and let God work how he has for years and years and years. The gospel will continue to go forth because as I said, it cannot be stopped. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you that you do not save us in a way to where you save us and then you tell us to have a seat and to not be heard from. That God, you saved us in a way that has changed our life. You've called us to a task as a church family, but also as individual Christians. And it's as you mold us and make us that all that works. You've called us to be mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, children, aunts, uncles, grandparents, Cause us to be friends, neighbors, co-workers. And you didn't just leave those relationships up in the air, but yet you have filled us with the Spirit completely and fully. And that filling of the Spirit has causes change in our life and how we view our relationships. All of our relationships need to be seen as us serving you. You've made that very clear. As we love our kids, it's because we love you. As wives submit to their husbands, it's submitting as to the Lord. All these different areas of our life, we serve you. And so God, I pray this morning for those who are here. Of course, I pray for the ones who have never trusted you as their savior. I pray that that would change today, that you would open their eyes to that truth. God, I pray for that Christian brother or sister who's been struggling. Whatever it may be. Maybe they're just down because of where things are in our world. Start to feel like, what is the point? God, I pray that you would help them to see how much you love them, how much you have done for them, and how there is a great point to the life that they live. Because in their life, they are to glorify you, which really is the chief end of man. We are to glorify you in everything. That is the most important task a person could be given. So God, wherever we find ourselves, rich or poor, young or old, I pray that we would be faithful to glorify you in every single relationship, every conversation, every transaction, every com everything. God, help us to do that faithfully. Because God, I know that's what it takes to then <clears throat> have an impact even on society as a whole. So God, we love you this morning. Help us to honor you by our response to your word that we'll do now, however that may be. As we sing a song to you, God, some may need to not sing, but to pray, have a time of prayer, seeking your face.
Maybe it's in thankfulness. Maybe it's in repentance. I don't know. But God, I pray that your word would work how it's intended to this morning in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.